foolish not to um, lengthen it or extend it out, but um, I think that we have an important um, point that we come to here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's interesting to me um, to note that uh, in the chapter prior to this, that the language that is used and the way that the story is told seems almost to be in a hurry uh, to get through the details of the war with the Ammonites and particularly with the Syrian mercenaries, that there's not a lot of detail, that um, it, it just kind of runs through almost like a catalog of what happened and the events that happened there. But then when we get to chapter 11, uh, the narrator slows down extensively and gives a lot of detail on certain things. All right, so I'll point out to you that in five verses, the, the course of David's life has changed inalterably, irreversibly. In five verses, but four really of those five verses, because the first verse doesn't really refer to the affair with Beth, Bathsheba at all. So four verses that change David's life forever. The rest of the chapter, which is 27 verses in length, speaks of Uriah. I went through and counted because I noticed how many times David's name is used. This is unusual. And I point out to you that the storyteller in Samuel is very intentional in what he does and the words that he uses. And when he means to emphasize a certain thing, he uses that word over and over and over again. So the name of David out of the 27 verses, I think I counted 23 times that his name is repeated in this chapter over and over and over and over again. <coughs> and the name of Uriah is also repeated, I believe, 20 times out of these 27 verses. So that's part of my reason, and there were three things that I saw that were distinct, and, and I'll just tell you that this morning's message is long. I woke up early this morning to cut it back. I cut two pages out of it. It's still long. You can thank me later for the two pages, all right? Um, but I thought there's no way that I'm going to cover all the things that I think need to be covered from this passage, and... Um, so I, I'm going to spend some time on this, and uh, I, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's, a, it's an uncomfortable chapter. It's an uncomfortable topic. But there's, there are some things that we definitely need to get from what is said here in this chapter. So I want you to stand with me as we, re we read 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 5. And the title of my message this morning is, When Lust hath conceived. 2 Samuel 11, beginning in verse 1, these are the words of God. And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle, 
Then David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the, daughter, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? <coughs> Pardon me. And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness. And she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am a child. Let's pray. Lord God, as we open your word together this morning, I pray that we would be sobered by what we see happening here in this passage. And that we would not respond in helpless fear, but that we would respond, though, in reverent fear to you, that we would tremble before you, that we would see our frailness, our weakness, and recognize our own, the own, our own ability to fall as David fell, that we would not presume on your grace, that we would not be presumptuous in our attitude or our approach to sin, but that we would recognize how easily any one of us could fall. And I pray that we would look to you and trust you and we would make use of all the things you've provided for us by your grace so that we might live holy in Christ Jesus. I pray that you'd help me, that I would preach the word faithfully to your people, that I would handle it rightly, that my presentation here this morning, my sermon and my way of delivery would not give a false impression that you are overly harsh or that you are overly indulgent, but that we would have a right perspective of terrible sin. Please help us, Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. James, in his epistle, pictures lust as a woman seduced and impregnated by temptation. Pregnant lust bears a child, and the child's name is sin. And sin also bears a child, and that child's name is death. No man, no woman, no human being is immune from the destructive power of sin. While you are still in this world, so long as you have breath, you are capable of sins that you don't think you would ever commit. You are capable of falling into sin. And there is no sin that you are immune from. 
And you might think, I would never do that. But the truth is that, but for the grace of God, there do I. We must not, we must not approach sin and temptation and lust in a casual, dismissive way. As if it holds no power over us. Has Christ given us the victory over sin? Absolutely. But we must always war against our lusts. And we must always put to death the old man. There must be a daily crucifixion of the old man with his affections and lusts. You will never be saved. You will never be able to let your guard down. You will never be immune from temptation. As long as you have lust. And you will have lust. Lust will be alive in you until you stand complete before God. It will be there. And as long as there is lust, temptation will be enticing to you. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So yes, it is true that he that is dead is freed from sin, as Romans 6 teaches us. He that is dead is freed from the dominion that sin once held over you. You are not a slave to it any longer. But while we're in this life, we can never put ourselves out of the reach of temptation. In this life, we will never come to a place where we no longer need the armor of God, where the armor of God is mere decoration, is just a formality for me to have. I cannot safely put the armor of God in the closet. And expect that I'll know when I better get it out. We cannot do that. We cannot do that. We must understand. Never tell yourself that sin holds no danger for you. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Telling yourself that sin is no longer a possibility for the believer doesn't help things at all. I hear Christians claim that they can't sin. These claims are always built on word tricks, always. There's always some kind of semantic uh, strategy for approaching the word of God in order to make that case. The word, the Greek word that's rendered sin in our Bible is hamartia. It appears 151 times in the New Testament and 150 out of 151 times, it is translated sin or sins. That's, hamartia is sin. And the word is used to speak of transgression of the law of God, what the ancient church fathers taught us, were sins of omission, sins of commission. He that knoweth, him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And sin is transgression of the law. 
Don't think that when we receive Christ as our Savior, we get a pass to disregard the law of God. We do not. Yes, it's true that our sins are forgiven and pardoned. And if you have been born again, if you have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you, then certainly when you sin, it is forgiven and God will forgive you. And God has already delivered you from the penalty of that sin by the death of Jesus Christ. But what a shame, what a disgrace it is for any believer ever to so disregard the holiness of the Holy Spirit of God that you would drag him along with you as you disregard the law of God and commit an offense, especially willfully, an offense against a holy and righteous God. My friend, we must not be casual when it comes to sin. We must recognize that our view of sin does not rise to the level of God's view of sin. That we are, in fact, it seems to me, incapable of seeing sin the way God sees it. Because we see sin and we are familiar with it. We are even sometimes comfortable with it. But God not only will not be comfortable with it, he refuses to come to terms with sin, ever. Sin is what, sin and sin alone, is what required the death, the bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. God said that was the only way that sin could be dealt with. For it was for it, sin, our sin, your sin, my sin, to be laid on Jesus Christ the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, and Jesus then must shed His blood, must die a brutal, horrifying, torturous death, so that the wrath of God against sin could be satisfied, so that God could forgive us of our sin, not by casually dismissing it, not by giving it a pass, not by saying it was okay. <coughs> But by saying it was not okay, but I laid it on Jesus, and my demands for justice have been satisfied by the death of my son. That's it. And so the only right way for you and I to understand sin is to understand that the smallest sin, the most insignificant sin, the most common sin that we commit, required the death of of Jesus Christ. We must not toy with sin. We must not play with it. We must not dabble with it. We must not. We must not entertain temptation. We must not. <clears throat> so then, we must be sober and vigilant as we guard against besetting sins and sinful tendencies. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. We must guard against careless overconfidence when it comes to the lusts of our flesh. See them for the enemy that they are. Recognize there are many attempts to overthrow us and ensnare us. 
Be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Peter said, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. We will never, never in this life reach a place where we are immune from the pull of sin. But we cannot fall into sin. If you find yourself thinking, I would never do that, beware. Beware. Because that is precisely the point where Satan will focus his attack. Satan pays attention to that sort of thing. He has cast down many mighty, many mightier than you. His trophy case is filled with the names of great men, of valiant men, of mighty men of faith. And David is among them. You see his story here. The story of David and Bathsheba serves as a sober reminder. Never, never say it could never happen to me. Never let yourself think that you are immune to the charms of sin. My soul be on thy guard. Ten thousand foes arise. The hosts of sin are pressing hard to draw thee from the skies. The watch and fight and pray, the battle ne'er give o'er. Renew it boldly every day and help the vine implore. Ne'er think the victory won nor lay thine armor down. The work of faith will not be done till thou obtain the crown. Fight on, my soul, till death shall bring thee to thy God. He'll take thee at thy parting breath to his divine abode. While we are in this life, we must fight. We must fight. I'm tempted to give a special warning to men in their middle years, well-established and thriving. In your youthful years, you were fighting to survive. You had to scrap and work and save and work overtime and take the hard shifts. You lived in apartments and had borrowed furniture and brought, bought your clothes secondhand and shopped the discount racks at the store. But now you're coming into your own. Maybe even you've come into your own. You might think that the worst years of temptation are past you. But they are not. Satan has a whole arsenal prepared just for people like you. In his screw tape letter, C.S. Lewis pointed out the special temptations reserved for middle age. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. You see, it is so hard for these creatures to preserve, persevere. That's, by the way, um, if you're not familiar with the screw tape letters, it's written from the perspective of the devil, writing about tempting us. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair hardly <coughs> felt as pain of ever overcoming the chronic temptations 
All this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. If on the one hand, I'm sorry, if on the other hand the middle years prove prosperous, our position, that is Satan's position, is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable worth, build up in him a sense of being really at home on earth. And we catch David in just such a position. His kingdom is established after many long, hard battles. His palace, well appointed for luxury and finery. He has carefully crafted a reputation for himself, a reputation for loving kindness, which he extends to all rivals, both foreign and domestic. He is the man after God's own heart. He is Israel's greatest king, and he is terribly unprepared for the temptation he is about to face. Now the narrator has been showing us the way David has become a man of settled fortune and virtue. God wants us to be warned, especially in our success. We risk falling into scandalous sin. David's prosperity and shining virtue blinded him to the danger that he was in. And more than anything, it made him careless of his relationship with the Holy God. In this message, I want to take a hard look at the way a hero of the faith fell into terrible sin. We'll see first what David was, then we'll see what David did, and then we'll see the immediate result of that sin. We begin with what David was. And let me just say this, that this goes against conventional wisdom. Because we have it in our mind, and I, I suppose, I mean, let's say this. There are a lot of things that we've heard many times over that preachers, well-intentioned preachers, have preached to people in order to warn them about danger, but then have overstated their case, all right? And this is an example of what I'm talking about here. Because we have it in our minds that when a person falls into disgraceful, scandalous sin, that there was always a long process of backsliding that took place in the months before he fell into that sin. Now I think that preachers, again, I think that preachers are, they mean well, in preaching that you need to keep up and maintain your walk with God and your relationship with God lest you fall. And certainly what I'm saying here is not a denial that a long process of backsliding could be followed by a sudden crash at the bottom. But I'm saying to you that everything that the narrator tells us here in 2 Samuel 
says the opposite of the long backslide into sin. You see David being king, fighting wars, defending his people, and then one fateful day, he stays home, he can't sleep, he gets up out of his bed, he walks out on the balcony, the porch of his palace, he sees Bathsheba, he sends a messenger, and calls her to him, and the rest is history. Was it a long process of backsliding? If it was, the Bible doesn't tell us that. In fact, the Bible presents it very differently than that. There are certainly people who slide into sin, <coughs> but there are also people who walk off a cliff and fall. The narrator establishes David's moral character in standing before this scandalous evil. In chapter 9, David begins to establish himself as the Hesed king. The Hesed king, sorry, mispronounced it. The Hesed king. <clears throat> he is the king who displays loving kindness, steadfast, loyal love to his subjects and to his neighbors, to his rivals, both foreign and domestic. He extends an extraordinarily gracious invitation to the grandson of his rival and nemesis and the cause of all his trouble in his youth. And David does it purely out of love for his friend Jonathan, son of Saul. In 2 Samuel, David demonstrates incredible loyalty to his dead friend on the basis of a covenant made years in advance. I promise that Jonathan is too dead to enforce. This act of loyal love set David apart from the kings of his day. Absolutely. In chapter 10, David extends Hesed to the Ammonites, Israel's enemies. And this gesture crazily uh, provoked an all-out war from the Ammonites and then the Syrians who were hired by them and joined with them. And in fact, this chapter falls in the middle of this Ammonite war. It begins, the chapter begins by telling you that this war is continuing. And chapter 12, after Nathan has confronted David with the sin, ends with the conclusion of that war and David's involvement in it as well. David is off fighting against the Syrians, leads his uh, troops, his, his army, against the mightiest of the Syrian generals and defeats him in battle. And then at the end of chapter 12, he conquers and subdues the Ammonite city. But in between, David stays home. In between, in chapter 11, David, the Chesed king, the king who shows mercy and kindness to his rivals, that king steals a man's wife and arranges that man's murder 
and he does it heartlessly and cruelly. And the Bible presents it this way so that we might experience the same kind of tragic scandal here. Because when a great man falls into sin, how much warning do we normally get of it? I've lived through several of these kinds of scandals. Men I admire who have fallen in terrible disgrace. There were very few warning signs. There, are, Most of the time, there are very few warning signs. We, again, like I said, we assume that there were months of backsliding that led up to it, but the Bible, again, doesn't hint that David had been backsliding. He became careless. He didn't keep his guard up. A boxer knows to always keep his fists up. Always keep your fists up, no matter what. No matter how tired you are, keep your fists up. You can dominate five rounds, but if you drop your fists in the sixth round, you can get dropped with one hit. And we know that Satan goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And lions, when they attack, lions' favorite tactic is to sneak attack. To catch you when you aren't vigilant, when you aren't watchful. Do I mean to frighten you with this? Well, yes and no. I hope at least to make you vigilant. We have a deadly enemy who is a seasoned warrior. He has brought down many valiant men. It won't be hard to bring you down if you let your guard down. And so Solomon in Proverbs 7 said to his son, Hearken unto me now therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her paths. For she hath cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. 2 Samuel 11 marks a terrible turning point in the life and reign of King David. It is the turning point of his life. I have pointed out to you before that the central chapter, the central story in the book of 1 Samuel is David's fight with Goliath. It was the turning point for Israel. But then we come to 2 Samuel and the central chapter of 2 Samuel, the key event in David's life, the turning point, is this chapter, this story, this sin, with Bathsheba. <clears throat> David in his life, well, you know, I've reminded you over and over that from the time of his anointing, when he was, when Samuel anointed him to be Israel's future king, that was the beginning of all his troubles. From that day forward, David was chased, David was surrounded, hounded, he was harassed. I meshed those two words, surrounded. That's a new one, a new word. We'll put it in the dictionary. 
He was harassed and hounded by Saul and chased from one corner of Israel to the other. He wasn't always perfect in his conduct. Several times he almost lost his integrity, but always God upheld him and preserved him and prevented him from self-destruction. When he became king, he was exemplary, the best kind of king, a true defender of his people. What a sober reminder that a guy can suffer so much and endure so much and overcome so much and still fall into sin. He can be good and right and virtuous and exemplary in his conduct. And then he can entertain one sin to his own destruction. Is the Christian life really this precarious? Well, again, I would say yes and no. Some will object that David did this in the Old Testament, before he had the advantage of New Testament grace, especially the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling him. And I agree. Through the power of the cross, you and I have gained unprecedented help and unprecedented power over sin. Knowing this, that the old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under the power of sin has been broken in our lives, absolutely. By the death of Jesus Christ and by our part and participation in his death, because we are crucified with him, the body of sin, the dominion of sin, the power of sin is broken in our lives. We need not be under the dominion of sin so that if we are under sin's dominion, it is always an act of will and not one of compulsion or necessity. Understand that. <clears throat> and yet we sin. We fail. We don't avail ourselves of the means that God has provided us and we succumb to temptations. It is true what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. It is true that God has given you the power to escape, the means of escaping, the ability to escape. He has given you that, no doubt. And yet... We sometimes yield through temptation. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For all of David's valor, 
and virtue, in a moment of weakness, he fell into this terrible sin. This is the thing, folks. You need to understand this. That the point of 2 Samuel 11 is to tell you that David fell into this sin. Not to hide it from you, not to conceal it from you, not to sugarcoat it or gloss over it, but to set it before you in stark detail. So that you'll understand the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart, Israel's great king, he fell into the sin. And if he fell, then we could also. That's the point that the Bible is making here. God left him to it. God removed the restraints that might have prevented David. And other times, earlier times in his life, when David was about to do something, make a, a terrible blunder, a terrible mistake because of his passion, because of his anger against Nabal, because of his resentment and, and despair, because of Saul's continual, perpetual stalking him, God prevented him. But though God had prevented him from sinning, God had prevented him from ruining his <clears throat> reputation many times before. God did not this time. The Bible speaks of the way God abandons a man who falls into this kind of sin. The mouth of strange women is a deep pit. He that is abhorred of the Lord shall fall therein. I'm speculating here, but it's very possible that David came to believe that he deserved the adulation of a fawning crowd. When you're in a public position like David and successful like David, it can be hard to resist the flattery. I imagine women looked at David with a special glow. That the adulation might have been intoxicating to David. Even in his youth, the, young, the, the women sang their songs about David. Women, you know, and I don't mean to say this in an insulting way, but it's just a reality of our fallen world, that women have been known to throw themselves at powerful and famous men. Married women often would offer themselves, in fact, regularly, married women would offer themselves to Martin Luther King Jr., a notorious womanizer and a serial adulterer. But everywhere he went, married women would offer themselves to Martin Luther King Jr., would send him notes, would send him their phone number, and so on. Sports commentators describe the women who wait outside the locker room after the game to meet the athletes in hopes of going home with them. Rock stars regularly receive propositions from women, both married and unmarried. So here is David, Israel's very virtuous king. He's shown extraordinary mercy and kindness to 
all of his rivals, his enemies, and so on. He has defeated most of Israel's major enemies. Joab is finishing up business even now. He probably recognizes that admiring glow in the eyes of the women of his kingdom. Maybe even Bathsheba's prior to this. Maybe when she came around with her husband, maybe she had a special look in her eye for David. Maybe he speculated in his mind that some might cheat on their husbands for a chance to be with them. I can't say for sure. It's plausible, certainly. Very possible that David became impressed with himself and forgot God. It's very possible that he became impressed with himself. That's why worship must take such a central place in our lives and why when we gather for worship, there must be a diligence on our part to worship God with all our might, with all our heart, to love him with all our being. Because this is what worship is doing for you, day in and day out. Your private worship, but then these public gatherings for worship as well. This is what is happening. This is what's taking place. That every time you bow the knee before God, every time you sit in wonder and amazement, in awe of God, you are reminded again of what is truly glorious. And when you're reminded of that, you see that nothing else measures up to the glory of God. You are reminded week after week after week that God is God and you are not. It is the most important concept to be reinforced in our minds week after week after week. And somehow, David, there's not a more passionate worshiper in all of the Bible than David. But somehow, David, I think, became impressed with himself. He came to believe that everyone who was impressed with him was justified to be impressed. And I think that the only way that that can happen is for you to stop being impressed with God the way you are to David, so that you are impressed himself instead with something else that is not nearly as impressive. God is worthy. And we fulfill our purpose by praising him, exalting him, magnifying him, worshiping him. But again, worship reminds us also of the glory of God. It brings a fresh glimpse of it. Worship cements in our minds who God is. David Sumura, in his commentary, has said that the biblical narrator intends to convey a warning. Even the most successful king like David may do evil in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, just because of his success, both military and political, King David blinded himself spiritually in his 
relationship with the holy and sovereign God. This passage highlights the change when David sinned. And, and it highlights it in subtle ways. Now we know that what will follow in throughout the rest of the book of 2 Samuel will be David's troubles that come out of this sin. But before that, in this chapter itself and the chapters leading up to it, the narrator is creating a contrast for you. David has been valiant, virtuous, victorious. But now when the kings go forth to battle, David is missing in action. Joab stays in the fight. David luxuriates in the palace. Maybe David thought he earned it. Nobody certainly would begrudge him the right to stay back. He had affairs to stay, of state to manage and to oversee. There was more going on in his country than just the war with the Ammonites. And things have been hard for him. He needed a little me time. <clears throat> Compare David's self-indulgence to Uriah's self-denial. David, this is the crazy thing. David can't resist Uriah's wife. And Uriah refuses to indulge himself while Israel is on the battlefield. This point is pressed home in this chapter, which opens with a brief description of David's terrible sin and then expands largely on the character of Uriah. And of course, Uriah's character is meant to contrast not only David's terrible sin and failure, but also David's desperation to cover the sin. And all of this to show us that when we are at our very best, we can very easily be at our worst. When we decide that we've earned a little me time, a little self-indulgence, we can easily lose control of that self-indulgence and slide into the abyss. My soul be on thy guard. So what did David do? Let's look at it. The chapter opens with an account of the ongoing war between Israel and Ammon, followed by a brief but telling statement that sets up this whole thing. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. The narrator doesn't comment on the thoughts of David, the mindset of David, the intentions of David. Doesn't tell us why he stayed, or what he intended, or what he was thinking at all. The only character in the story, in fact, where we get insight into their mindset is Uriah in verse 11, when Uriah explains why he didn't go home and sleep with his wife. We can guess at what David was doing when he arose from off his bed and walked onto his roof. We can guess at the look that might have been exchanged between David and Bathsheba. The fourth verse tells us that she was purified from her uncleanness. So she was purifying herself as the law required 
when David saw her washing herself. This is a ceremonial thing. It's common in Israel. In fact, in Israel, I was impressed at the number of houses wherever there was a substantial house at all. Um, there was a little stairway that went down to a little pool of water that was for ritual purification, for cleansing. Every house had it, um, or every area, and maybe shared houses, maybe sometimes shared among poorer homes. Um, but they were everywhere. They're everywhere throughout Israel, those old ritual baths. And Bathsheba went down to her ritual bath. It was outside. That's where they were. They were outside, these little ritual baths. And they would, so, so it's not like, I mean, when I was a kid, I remember I heard one preacher say that she was sunbathing in her backyard. <laughs> I, I don't know. You just make stuff up, I guess. Um, that's kind of the rule of the day. Um, but uh, that she, you know, why was she taking a bath outside? I, I, that, I, you could study a little. You know, just read like one or two commentaries and you would have the answer to that question. Uh, so this is what is happening. Um, this was a common thing. This was what they did. <clears throat> David's palace sat on almost the highest hill in Jerusalem. In fact, it's the second highest. The only thing higher than David's palace was the Temple Mount. That was right directly above where his palace sits. Jerusalem itself is a mountain. It's very mountainous. And uh, David's palace is high up on that mountain. Uh, like I said, nothing higher than that. And he stood on a rooftop, a flat rooftop is, you know, in Israel. And uh, we looked, and I could see very easily how David would look right down into uh, Bathsheba's backyard, Uriah's backyard. That tells you that they were near neighbors as well. He looks down. And sees, he would see right down there. I always pictured it as if Uriah or, or Bathsheba was a long way off and like David needed a pair of binoculars or something. But no, when you're standing there, everything is just very close. Right there. It's all right there for David. And from the Bible makes a point here of Bathsheba's beauty. I've often wondered if looks or glances had not been exchanged between David and Bathsheba prior to this. Surely David was not unaware of who she was, but the Bible doesn't elaborate on that at all. The point is that David did this and that the blame for it rests squarely on David. The Bible gives no hint that Bathsheba might have signaled anything to David. David sent and inquired after the woman. We can assume that he did this on the pretense of checking on her welfare while her husband is away at war. He just wanted to check, make sure things were okay with her. Again, we can be sure that her husband was no stranger to David, we know that Uriah is listed as one of the 30 among David's mighty men. Most likely, David gave Uriah's wife the honor of a private interview. And no one suspected what happened. 
The narrator has a knack for dropping ironic statements in the most innocent way. And so in the middle of verse 4, which is the verse that describes the adultery, we get this. For she was purified from her uncleanness. In the midst of her making herself unclean, the Bible points out that she was purified from her uncleanness. She trashed God's moral law after she had followed his ceremonial law. She made sure that the outside was right and then gave up on the inside. Other than this, the description of the affair is pretty terse. The narrator tells the story much the way it must have happened. He isn't provocative in the way he tells the story. It was an impersonal act. All passion, no love. Done in the darkness of night. The narrator is careful to call her the wife of Uriah so that what passes between her and David won't seem to be anything noble or good. I notice that movies, when they introduce some kind of illicit affair, will <clears throat> always paint the external characters. So, you know, you have this man and he falls in love with this woman and never mind that the woman is married. In fact, the movies always set you up for it. They show the woman's husband as an ogre, a brute, a jerk. And that somehow justifies in our minds this other man showing her the love and affection that she just craves and never gets at home. And this is the way that the world tells itself that this is okay, this is acceptable. But in reality, adultery is inexcusable. You cannot justify it. The description mirrors the way these affairs happen. A rush of passion, and then it's over. Notice the verbs in verse 4. Sent, took, lay, returned. One verse that forever changed David's life, forever tainted David's reputation. That is exactly how it goes. The royal need of self-indulgence does not take very long. The action... I'm quoting here, the action is so stark. There's nothing but action. There's no conversation. There's no hint of caring, of affection, of love, only lust. David does not call her by name, does not even speak to her. At the end of the encounter, she is only the woman. In verse 5. <laughs> no emotions are described. David calls she comes, they commit adultery, she goes home. The Bible says nothing about Bathsheba's feelings or David's feelings. That doesn't matter. David took her, 
And she came in unto him, and he lay with her. And then comes that faithful message that tells us David isn't getting away with this. I'm pregnant. By the way, those are the only recorded words that Bathsheba utters. But of course, Bathsheba's terse message is pregnant with implications for David. David clearly immediately recognizes the scandal, the disgrace that he now faces. If I can say this discreetly, Bathsheba has just purified herself from her uncleanness, which means that she is not pregnant when she comes into David, and now she is pregnant. And of course, Uriah is away fighting for his country. We'll come to David's response to this impending scandal. But when we sin, when we sin, there will be a moment of clarity when we see the sin for what it is. See, that's the thing about sin, is that we pursue it and pursue it and pursue it, and then when we finally get it, it evaporates in our hands. And all we're left with is the guilt. That actually obtaining the sin, which is what drove you, what made you want it so bad, obtaining the sin is the end of the pleasure. The sin is the end of the pleasure. And in the moment when you get the sin that you were pursuing in that moment, the pleasure of it is gone. And what you have left is guilt and shame and consequences. And when Bathsheba said, I am pregnant, David knew there were consequences. Sometimes in the sovereignty of God, we won't be able to hide from the consequences. Bathsheba's pregnancy reminds me of James. Pregnant lust bears a child, and the child's name is sin. And whenever lust gives birth to a child, you know that death will follow. Soul that sinneth, it shall die. And the wages of sin is death. So we should all be warned here because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins but a certain looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Well, listen to James. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Now, some of us need to be warned against carelessness. If you are not sober, if you are not vigilant, you may fall into the snare of the devil, into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Do not be careless 
be vigilant, recognize temptation, and flee.